In association with the Omniverse Comics Guide, this is the Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast coming to you from all over the world. I'm your host, Eric Anthony, and this is episode 301. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the cave. Uh, Just before we begin the episode proper, I wanted to do a little preamble before we begin so that you knew what was up. This episode features footage from this year's Fan Expo Canada 2022, where I had the privilege to moderate and host a couple of panels this year. Remember back when I used to just record them very quietly in the background or an audience member and post uh, post the episodes for for you listeners. Well, uh, things have changed a little bit, and thank you for coming on the, the ride with me, the journey. Uh, this year I got to host, as I said, thank you to Fan Expo and to Kevin Boyd for helping set that up for me, but I jumped at the opportunity for today's guest, was able to record live with the audience with us, and uh, prepare this, this podcast for you with the legendary artist and writer Mike Grell. Everyone who's listened for the last couple months knows how much I love his Longbow Hunter saga, so it was a no-brainer for me to be able to talk to him, which is what we talk mostly about, is his Green Arrow run. But uh, of course, thanks to the fans that were in attendance, they asked a couple of questions in regards to his other works, and he gives us some really cool stories about him growing up in Wisconsin and uh, being drafted in the Vietnam War, and well, I'll let you listen to the episode, enough for me. But thank you everybody for downloading, for listening, thank you to Fan Expo Canada for having us, and uh, don't forget to rate and review the show, Uh, stay tuned for more episodes coming your way. We got some more footage from Fan Expo, as well as some interviews that are that are lined up, that are about to happen. So thank you everybody for listening. Rate and review the show, Omniverse Comics Guide. Check it out on Instagram and all the different uh, social media websites. But without further ado, enough from me. Let's talk to Mike Rowe. Shall uh, shall we begin? Just sure, we might o'clock? as well. Yeah. All right. Well, my name is Eric Anthony. I'm the host of a Cave of Solitude podcast. Um, we might be. You might have this episode posted. You might be a part of it if you guys have questions and things like that. So feel free to join in. Uh, our guest, obviously, we all know who it is. That's why we're here. He needs no introduction. A spotlight on the legendary Mike Grell. Thank you, Mike, for coming back to Toronto again. It's always a treat to have you and to listen I to your stories. Um, where do we begin? Let's talk about you growing up in Wisconsin, northern yeah. Wisconsin, and yep. how did that upbringing influence what would eventually be a lot of what you put into your work, such as The Longbow Hunter? Oh yeah, um, I, I grew up in a tiny town 100 miles north of Green Bay, north to Green Bay, um, <laughs> and uh, my dad was a lumberjack, my mom was a uh, barmaid, and, uh, uh, but she had uh, uh, interesting upbringing in the middle of the North Woods. They lived way out in the outback. And uh, in later years, whenever she'd have the Hallmark Channel on, which was all the time, uh, varying be- between Te- Walker, Texas Ranger, and the Waltons, right? Every time the music for the Waltons would start up, my mom from the back of the house would yell, The Waltons were rich! <laughs> but with, with that kind of an upbringing, um, I, the whole family hunted, mom especially. Um, wow. And yep, and uh, because she, 
when she was a kid, it was all subsistence. And at, at the time when, when I came along, um, when the Kennedy administration uh, did an analysis of the 10 most depressed areas in the United States, my hometown was tied for first place with Appalachia. Yeah. Uh, if, if your dad didn't hunt, the family didn't eat meat, and that's all there was to it. Uh, I shot my first deer when I was 12, and the idea that I had just fed my family for the winter was just amazing. I mean, you know, from that point on, I was hooked. But as far as, as uh, the longbow hunters goes, I shot my first bow when I was about four years old. Wow. And the arrow went about halfway from me to you, sir. And... <laughs> But it's stuck in the ground, and when you're four years old, that is the coolest dang thing, right? Um, fast forward three years, and my buddy Joe, who was one year older than me, and my oldest brother, who was five years older than me, um, and would later go on to record the highest IQ ever in our school system. This is important to remember for what's going to happen next. <laughs> Those guys each bought an archery set, and we all trooped down to the big field at the edge of town to shoot arrows because that's what you do. And uh, Bob and Joe, uh, Bob's buddy Dizzy and me, We've all taken turns shooting arrows up into the air and watching them come down, run down the field, shoot them back, back and forth, back and forth. And on about the fourth pass, my supposed genius brother says, stay there, we'll shoot them back to you. <laughs> and, and we're little kids, right? What do we know? <laughs> and we did. And the first arrow goes up and sticks in the ground about from me to that computer away. That one right there. I'm talking six, seven feet from maybe 150 yards out. And the second arrow goes up and Joe's watching. He goes, it's gonna hit me. And he turns and runs straight away. He got two steps and bonk. No. Skidded under his scalp. And he's wearing like a unicorn horn, like this. Oh. Fletch out the back, and and he hit the deck on his knees, and the blood was running down his face. And uh, here comes Bob and Dizzy, appropriately named for other reasons, <laughs> uh, but appropriately named. And they come thundering down the down the field, um, and Dizzy does the worst thing you could possibly do grabs the arrow and yanks it out and it's like that scene in carrie where bucket of blood and i'm, I'm just standing there like uh, <laughs> did you kill joe and uh they grab him under the arms and they ran him the three blocks to my home where my dad uh well-decorated combat veteran of World War II, fought in five major campaigns, came home without a scratch. Did the intelligent thing that any highly trained combat veteran would do. He got on the phone and called my mom. <laughs> and she hears, Pat, come home quick. Bob shot Joe in the head with an arrow, click. And she's picturing Steve Martin, like. <laughs> <laughs>
So, <laughs> she, so she came home and uh, um, used a field expedient bandage for its original purpose, uh, otherwise known as a cotex. One this <laughs> way over the top of his head, another one tied under his chin and took him up to the doctor to get stitched up. Now, this is in the days before litigation, right? Because <laughs> nobody, nobody got sued for it. Nobody even got in trouble for it. I mean, it's just like, well, I guess you learned your lesson, right? Yeah, we learned certainly hard did. Way. Right. And uh, Joe, <laughs> to his dying day, unfortunately, he was killed in a car wreck when he was a senior in high school. But he was a handsome kid to begin with. But he wore his hair in a flat-up haircut to show that scar off because it's like this big, and it was an absolute chick magnet. They go, what happened? He said, shot in the head. <laughs> no. Ask him. He was there. I go, yep, shot in the head. Jeez. So you, you had danger around you from a very early age. Oh, yeah. My brother's favorite game was Let's Kill Michael. Oh, um, I, oh, I, I, used to, I used to stand up against the side of the garage like this and let him throw knives and shoot arrows on oh, me. Oh, my goodness. It never dawned, me, dawned on me until I was in my teens that they might not be missing on purpose. Well, we're happy that you survived all of that. Uh, you yeah, didn't me get too. hit in the head with the arrow. <laughs> yeah, um, The relationship with comic books, when did that begin for you? Oh, um, I didn't have TV when I was a kid. I, I never saw TV until I was eight. We didn't get one until I was 11. And in the meantime, we had comic books, comic strips, um, old-time radio shows, movies, and a stack of paper this high and a pencil. And if you didn't have a dime for a comic book, you could draw one. Right. Um, we each got a, an allowance, I remember, uh, when... when uh, Mom got a new job, and we could afford 25 cents each allowance for a week. Well, with 25 cents, you could buy a lot of stuff. Uh, right away, we'd run down and uh, um, buy comic books. Um, my oldest brother was into EC, you know, Axe in the Head, you know, anything that was bloody and gory, that, that was for him. Um, middle brother was into uh, uh, movie adaptations and and uh, uh, cowboy uh, action kind of stuff, and I was into Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge and and things like that. And then after we were done reading, we would swap with all the other kids in town. And by the end of the week, every kid in town had read every comic book that came out uh, that week. And sometimes you hoarded them, they went under your bed. Most often you swapped them to the Roshan girls down the street who always bought Archie. And mm -hmm. we never had to buy an Archie comic. We could always trade something for it. Um, I had the uh, all of the Silver Age Marvel stuff and DC uh, under my bed when I went off to college, where that wound up anybody's guess. Um, but then, uh, I, I always wanted to be a lumberjack, just like my old man. Hmm. 
And then when I turned 16, he got me a job working in the woods. And as soon as I found out how hard he'd been working all those years, <laughs> it's like, there's got to be an easier way to make a living. So then I thought, architect. Mm. But then you have to be able to do math. Now was yeah, days, yeah, it was it was days before computers, CAD programs, and everything else. So scrap that. Then I figured commercial art because you can get paid while you're still alive instead of having to wait until you're dead to clean up like Van Gogh. <laughs> I mean, never sold a painting while he's alive, but he's rolling in the dough right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, it had the word art in it because. No, not really working for a living. You're just drawing pictures. But uh, before I could get enrolled into a decent art school, I got caught up in the draft and mm. uh, given a choice of two years in a rice paddy or four years in the service of my choice, I chose the Air Force and met a guy in basic training who said, forget commercial art, man. you got to become a cartoonist. They said, why? He said, are you kidding? They only work two or three days a week and they make a million dollars a year. And <laughs> that's for me. Uh, Was he right? I'm finishing up my 49th year in comics. Next month, we'll be closing out that 49th year. Somebody owes me 49 and a half, 48 and a half million dollars and, and a hell of a lot of time off. Um, yeah, no, he was talking about uh, Charles Schultz, apparently. Okay. The, the one and only in the, the Rarified hair. Yeah, rarefied. Um, but um, I BS my way into a job as an illustrator in the Air Force where I used to do uh, um, everything from, oh, the, the really high super secret stuff. Oh. I drew the maps that the pilots used when they were supposed to fly over and bomb Moscow. Wow. Yeah. Our guys couldn't find their butts in the dark with both hands and a flashlight. <laughs> I mean, they were, they were, they were just miserable. Um, whenever they would do a, a training mission, um, our, I'd give you an idea, our wing commander, the Grand High Mucky Muck, flying the, the airplane um, on a test bombing run where they take photographs through the bomb site to see exactly where it would have landed. Uh, the closest, his closest bomb came to his target was twice as far off target as the astronauts were the first time they orbited the moon and came back to the United States, uh, back back to Earth. Jeez. Like, yeah, that was not good. Lucky thing, we never had to use that stuff. Uh, but when I was uh, in Saigon, um, I, uh, I did escape and evasion tips for down flyers that apparently the Air Force is cheap and chintzy because they're still using those posters at Fairchild Air Force Base in the, in the Air Crew Survival School. Wow. The guy who just came through told me like last year, he said, yeah, it's still there. I went, impossible. He goes, no, it's got your signature on it and everything. Like, oh my God. Wow. Well, maybe the, the paintings are just so good that they don't want anyone no. else to do them. <laughs> no. no, they're just too cheap. Uh, but while I was in Saigon, I met a guy um, who uh, was carrying a small stack of his favorite comics. And in that stack was 
um, Tomb of Dracula, mm -hmm. Daredevil, mm -hmm. Gene Coleman, right. Tom Palmer, um, and Green Lantern, Green Arrow by Neil and Denny and Dick. And uh, that was life changer for me. The comics when I had gotten away from them, uh, still pretty cartoonish, uh, not that much in the way of illustrative quality and certainly no storylines that were relevant had anything to do with the real world. And I decided right then and there, that was the kind of thing I wanted to do. I got lucky. Yeah, you, you, when you got onto the Green Lantern and Green Arrow books, how long had Denny been writing? Were you right after Neil Adams' run? Well, I was, um, technically speaking, uh, Green Lantern and Green Arrow stopped with Neil. They only got 13 issues. Right. Um, was a lot of people are not aware, or aware of it. The sales were in the pits. Yeah. Um, so it was uh, out of publication from, I think, 1970 to 74, 75, 75. It was a few years later. Yeah. And I happened to be in the office at D.C. when the word went through the hallway that Denny was going to resurrect the title. And I had already done uh, backup stories for both Green Lantern and Green Arrow, but never together. I went straight to his office and said, who do I have to kill? And he said, if you want it that bad, just put the gun down and John's yours. <laughs> no, not really, but he said, yeah, I think it would be a good match. Um, so, you know, there my hangs a tail. I mean, it was my dream job. It really was. What was it about Green Arrow that appealed to you so much as a, as a fan and a reader? That brought you, was it the way that Denny wrote those characters and the things that Green Arrow stood for, the, the, a little more grounded? Uh, I think all of the above. Uh, from the time I was a little kid, I always loved Green Arrow because it's Robin Hood. Right. Bow and Arrow, right? Okay. Um, in The Longbow Hunters, there's a scene that shows Oliver Queen as a little kid running around with a stick bow and arrow stuck on the back of his T-shirt. That was me. I mean, that, that was my childhood. And uh, the thing that I liked about Denny's approach was that he had the contrast between the two characters. Green Lantern was almost like Judge Dredd with a power ring. Uh, the letter of the law, the law, the law, the law, the law, the law, the law. And Green Arrow was more like Robin Hood, the spirit of justice. Right. You know, he, and they, the two would butt heads together. And I, I like that. I like that the dynamic uh, in the relationship. I also like the fact that uh, even even in those books, it was obvious that Oliver was banging Dino Lance. <laughs> <laughs> well, you took it to a, you took it to a, a more mature reader level when you get your your shot at that relationship. But, well, I, I did. Yeah, I mean, speaking of rarefied air, there are many creators who um, have wonderful careers, and they've written a you know you think of a writer, let's say like Brian Michael Bendis or Jeff Johns, everything they touch is you know, people respect it. But then you've got those creators, such as yourself, and I would say people like a, a Walter Simonson, who become so associated with you know, Frank Miller with Daredevil. But you and Green Arrow, you've become kind of the definitive writer and artist for a character like that. And you're in that club of people who's like, that's the run to read, if you're ever going to read it. 
Um, I'll take it. Yeah, no, it's it's yeah. deserved. That story for longbow hunters was that something that you had kind of ready to, to tell, or was it specifically tailored for Ollie? When you got the was it Mike Gold who was who lured you back into yes to, to say you know he's a uh, urban hunter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Mike contacted me and and I had left to do my own thing. I was doing sable um, for a while and uh, um, he said, is there anything over here that you like, any character that you like well enough to bury the hatchet and come back to work? And uh, when Green Arrow came up, I said, it's always been my favorite comic book character, still is. And he said, well, think about this. Green Arrow is an urban hunter. I was hooked. That's that's all it took. Plus, they gave me carte blanche, any kind of story that I wanted. Um, and the, the the story that I chose is interesting. I, I did have that story scrolled away. I had it scrolled away from uh, about 1974, 75. I had done a, a a bunch of the Green Arrow backup stories, and I had an idea for a story that I wanted to. I wanted to do, wanted to um, get a shot at writing, and it was, um, they created a, a contrasting character, a lady archer who went by the name Black Arrow for no particular reason. But the concept was that she was a Holocaust survivor, and she was tracking down Nazi war criminals who had come into the United States under Operation Paperclip at the end of uh, World War II and shooting with a black arrow. And unfortunately, when I pitched it to uh, Julie Schwartz, he said, uh, he was a little heavy handed in his editing, he went, No, no, you got it wrong. Here's what it is. He, it's, it's not a girl, it's a young boy. And He's the reincarnation of King David, and he's not using a bow and arrow, he's using a sling and rocks to kill him. And I went, that's not the story I want to do. I said, hmm. tell you what, you can have the plot, get Elliot to write it, I'll draw it. I needed the work, right? Um, so I did. Uh, but my story went into the drawer, and it came time to do longbow hunters, I fished it back out again, changed the character to the daughter of uh, um, Japanese Americans um, with Yakuza ties uh, at the, the tail end of World War II the, who had been in an internment camp. And the guys at the internment camp get wise to the fact that he's um, been given care and custody of $20 million in gold, Yakuza gold. And uh, they torture him and his wife to get them to reveal the location of the gold. And now she's on a mission from the Yakuza, um, tracking down those guys from that camp. And one by one, she's killing all these creaky old uh, XGIs. And, um, but, you know, it's a case of waste not, want not. You know, nothing is, nothing is ever wasted. Somebody asked me once upon a time, so what do you do with all your scrap? I said, what do you mean scrap? He said, you know, drawings that just, you know, pages that didn't work out. 
and you had to redraw them. I said, you never redraw them. You correct them, but you never redraw them. And he went, what? Hey, I've, I've spent a lot of years in the, the commercial art business and in the Air Force where, no, you don't throw something away. You fix it, right? Fix it and then publish it, print it, whatever. And so that was always my attitude. I do have preliminaries, you know, rough sketches and stuff like that, but there's no, there's no such thing as a page that gets ruined for some reason. My, my one of my ex-wives, <laughs> I won't tell you how many there are. Um, let's just say there's something about me that just kind of pisses women off. Um, <laughs> Came in my studio. I had just finished inking the splash page for Star Slayer number two. She bumped into my table, and a bottle of ink tipped over and rolled, as it always does, at a kind of little arc, and poured black ink that ran down the entire page. And I sat back and I was just dumbfounded. And she said, is that waterproof? I said, not until it's dry. And I grabbed the page, ran to the bathroom, turned the tub on, full blast, stuck it under the water, and almost every bit of that ink came off. There were a few little uh, drips and squiggles. I worked that into the artwork and called it good. There you go. Yep. Yeah, waste not one now. Quick thinking, that's good. Was there pushback at all at that time when you were putting out some of those issues when you get into the, to the main series? Because now it's a mature reader series and some of the things, like if people uh, read it now, they might think, wow, man, the, you know, sometimes people go too far. But it wasn't shock value or shock value that you were doing. I, I took a lot of those stories straight out of the headlines. Uh, one in particular uh, had to do with... Uh, a biker gang in Canada that had sold a girl into the sex trade to a gang in the U.S. They hauled her down to Florida and put her to work. When she tried to break away, they caught her and crucified her. Jeez. And, and we showed that in the comic. Um, I had a, 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 among the reactionary types, I had a a, a reputation as being something of a misogynist. Nothing could be further than from the truth. Uh, anybody who knew my mom and and uh, um, knew me as I as I grew up and and the respect and admiration that I have for women in general. I already told you my my mom was a hell of a shot. I mean, right? Um, that's 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 not me. You know, that's a that's a shorthand impression that people got for some reason. That um, be that as it may, um, the reason we got away with that particular story was that when I wrote it and sent it in, um, Dan Jurgens was penciling and Dick Giordano was inking. Dick was also running the company, mm. and. Um, Mike Gold took it to him and said, what do you think we ought to do about this? And Dick looked at it, he said, push the envelope. And we did. We pushed it, we shoved it down their throats, gave it to them ugly and dirty the way it was intended to be, in their face. There's no way to whitewash that. And uh, 
as a result, I was mentioned. Okay, I wasn't mentioned. They didn't use my name, damn it. But Green Arrow was mentioned in the New York Times and Time Magazine in the same week. They, ref they referred to it as borderline pornography pandering to the prurient interests of today's youth. That's, that's one of the best reviews I've ever gotten. Mindy Newell got mentioned in the same article. They used her name, dang it. Um, Mindy's dad was a heavy hitter, stockbroker on uh, Wall Street, and she was writing Catwoman. And she gets a phone call, and it's Daddy with a summons. Mindy, I'd like you to come to the office today for lunch. She, oh, my God, now what? She just knew he was going to lower the boom on her. So up she goes in the elevator. His company had like seven floors of a big building on Wall Street. And she gets off in the main lobby, and directly across from her is that page from the Times blown up wall size with her name circled in yellow yep. highlighter 50 times. She got a standing ovation from the office. Her dad came out and gave her a big bouquet of roses. He said, honey, I've been on Wall Street for 35 years and never got my name in the Times. <laughs> so it was making, like the work at that time was clearly making shockwaves. Was it reflecting in the sales? Did it have a boost at all or? Was the quality? Sales, sales were great. Sales were great. Yeah. Um, we were selling um, at, a, at a time when a lot of the DC numbers were kind of iffy. Uh, we were selling 80,000, 90,000 copies a month. That's great. Yeah. And it was consistent. Oh, yeah. 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 The, the, um, the standard back then for, um, well, the cutoff was. 33,000. Right. Yeah, they, they run a, the a, right, run 100,000 copies off the press, and you had to sell over a third, 33,334, right, to get into the black. As long as the ink was black, that's all anybody cared. Right. Uh, if you drop below that, and but you know, the, the character proved popular, the series proved popular. And I didn't leave it until the opportunity came to move on and, and do a book of my choice over at um, Image Comics. Right. Star, um, Shaman's Tears. And it, and it feels like, speaking of Image, this, like the work you were doing with Green Arrow at DC, what they would call today like a black label title or a vertical title, but it, it kind of was treated, you kind of treated it like a creator owned the way they gave you carte blanche with Ollie. Was there, any, um, was there anybody at odds with the fact like, hey, Mike is using Ollie in a way he's not, he can't be in the Justice League, he can't be here. Was there any uh, strain in regards to how Ollie was being used from other people? Uh, no, actually, uh, Julie Schwartz stepped up to my defense uh, early on with that. Um, before I ever did the Longbow Hunters with Green Arrow, um, Elliot Megan was in his office one day, and as I walk in, they're debating, and Elliot is saying, well, we know Superman has bored through the center of the planet. Why didn't he discover Scartaris, right? And Julie said, around here, we have Earth-1, Earth-2, Earth-Prime, and Earth-Grell. <laughs> and... and <laughs> 
Elliot said, what's on Earth Krell? <laughs> it goes, him. <laughs> In other words, leave him the hell alone, let him do his own thing. And so with, with uh, Green Arrow, once I did the regular series, because I had done away with, I did not want to do anything to do with outer space, uh, superpowers or anything like that. Uh, when Hal Jordan appeared, it was as Hal. Not as Green, not as Green Lantern. He didn't have the ring working for him or anything like that. Um, and I just created, I guess, my own little world that I could play in and left everybody else to their own. And because I wasn't meddling with or disturbing anything that they had going, they went, fine, just leave him alone. Right, yep. and it was for the best for the book. Yeah. Being a writer artist, and you drew the first, like that classic portion that was the Longbow Hunters graphic novel that everyone loves, and then you go into the series with different artists that you're collaborating with. Yeah. Um, Knowing what goes into illustrating the interiors and having the visual feel for this world, how did you collaborate with Ed Hannigan and Dan Jurgens to make sure that, you know, everything, was it, you just gave them the same creative freedom or were you still kind of having a say? I, I did. I, I, I rarely had any kind of notes at all uh, for those guys because uh, they're pros. I trusted them implicitly and I also learned how to, how to write a story well by working with Benny O'Neill. I learned more about what what's good storytelling, good writing by drawing Denny's scripts than anything else I, I ever did. Um, Denny always gave you what you needed in order to tell the story the way he saw it. But then he would leave you to your own devices. Right. He didn't. He didn't care if he, uh, the panel description might say uh, um, establishing shot, you know, Star City or whatever. Yeah, that could be anything that you wanted to do. Um, but then when you get into what's going on, if there was something important in the details. Of course, it would be in the panel description and the action. But anything else, it might be as simple as uh, CO two shot you know, more of the same, in other words, talking heads, because you have exposition dialogue that you need to get out, and it's left to you to figure out how to make it interesting for the reader. If you come up with an oddball kind of a um, layout that nobody thought of before, um, you know, by all means, I write cinematically, um, and I write full script, uh, none of this you know, an outline and then turn it loose on the, on the artist to figure out how to do all the action and then come back later on and add dialogue. That, that's not my thing. I always want supervision at every stage of the game. Uh, I like the idea that an editor is uh, watching over my shoulder and um, because left to my own devices, oh my lord, I'd probably commit murder and mayhem. On, on a mass scale uh, on a daily basis. Um, a good example is, if you remember the, a lot of the Marvel comics that were published in the 1970s were edited by the guy who was writing the book. And as a result, some of that stuff was just awful. 
<laughs> really. Um, and and the, the Marvel style is to, you know, work from a, a paragraph that describes the entire page, let the artist figure out what all the action is, and then the writer comes back and feels like he absolutely must earn his living by adding as many balloons as possible. My favorite <laughs> bad example, favorite bad example, splash page, corner on the deck of a ship. And he's all teeth and tonsils, right? Because it's Conan and he's like, and there's a, a giant wave just about to pulverize the ship. He's actually got a dialogue balloon that says, lo, yon mighty wave doth rise above the deck of this ship like the very hand of Crom. Like, we can see that anymore. <laughs> right. We can see that. Um, so yeah, there's there's nothing there's nothing wrong with just pure visuals, you know, knowing when to shut up. But I I like the idea that someone's watching over my shoulder, and if I go astray, they'll call me on it. Um, and we used to have discussions and sometimes arguments. And if I felt extremely strong about it, I would stand my ground. If somebody could make a, a point that I could see and it made common sense, we do it their way. But if they couldn't convince me, then we did it my way. Right. Well, th that whole series is very fast moving because I think you were ahead of the curve when it came to decompressing the story and letting the art tell it. There's a lot of action scenes where at that time people were still word ballooning like crazy when they didn't have to. Oh, yeah. Anybody here ever been in a fight? <laughs> were you ever like soliloquizing during the... <laughs> During the fight, I mean, yeah, I've, I've, been, I've been in precious few, thank God, and I never thought to say anything except, ow, <laughs> said that a lot. Yeah, it's, it's like, no, you, you don't run off at the mouth while you're fighting, although there's one guy who was in the process of beating me to a pulp. And his arms got tired, so he was going to walk away. And I said, come back here and fight, you son of a bitch. And, <laughs> and unfortunately, he did until I, the entire fight, I got him one punch that I landed. And I broke his nose and cracked his jaw. And when I went back to my buddies, they said, okay, what happened? I said, um, Jim and Costa called my girlfriend a whore. Turned out he was right. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but I, they said and I broke his nose and they said you mean you won I went yeah and they went we gotta go see him like well, what the hell so there's a truck right there and I grabbed the mirror and I turned it and there's Rocky Balboa staring back at me after Apollo Creed got done with him I was like <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Yes, the well, nose never did really recover. All you need is that one good shot, right? You yeah. You take it when you got it. Do you uh, audience members have any questions? Yes. Sure. Welcome back. Thank um, you. Uh, I was a fan of uh, John Staple. Yes. And I was surprised with the TV show. What was your, how were you involved in the I was surprised, too. Uh -huh. <laughs> I was not involved at all until they sent me a copy of the the rough cut of the pilot. And I contacted them and said, you got a lot of trouble here. 
and I was right. It was the sable for anybody who hasn't followed it or just shorthand for folks on the podcast. Um, sable, my concept was easy. It was the reverse of Batman. No superpowers, no secret identity, none of this by day the mild mannered, whatever, by night the dark avenger. Um, the only thing he's got going for him is that um, he's got a, a certain skill set. Uh, and and uh, uh, the only time he uh, ever uses a, a secret identity sort of is, it's a really a pen name. He writes children's books under the name of B.B. Flynn um, about a troop of leprechauns living in a fairy mound in Central Park. And when he has to do an appearance and sign autographs, he puts on a Harpo Marx wig and glasses and a fake mustache. Um, but that's, that, that's all for the humor of it as well. Uh, ABC got hold of it and they went, uh, no, you got it wrong, see. We got a better idea. By day, he's a mild-mannered children's author. And by night, get this, the Dark Avenger. So they reversed my reverse and made it exactly like Batman. Um, the action was good. Um, the the stories were okay, uh, but the the performers were excellent. Uh, Rene Russo made her acting debut as uh, Eden Kendall in that series. Uh, Laurel Flynn Boyle was the twelve year old girl who was kidnapped in the pilot episode. Um, but uh, yeah, we tested number one in 18 to 35 year old male market. So what do they do? They put it on at eight o'clock on Saturday night. Guess where your demographic is? Eight o'clock Saturday night. They're not sitting home watching TV. No. We started off selling beer and four wheel drives. Coors beer, Dodge Ram trucks. Two weeks later, we were selling Calgon and Ritz crackers. <laughs> like the, the sponsors abandoned ship they, they had to put something in there they couldn't have dead air um, yeah it was it was terrible too late did you how much uh, input did they or consulting for Green Arrow or for Arrow did you uh, was it just references in the show or they would name streets after you or because so much of that show is very much based off of work you put into the character? Well, the only input I had on the show was I drew the water poster that they used every week. I got a print of it at my table that if you come back after we're done here, you can buy it. Um, but no, that was it. Um, the part of the part of the reason I was given why they didn't ask me to write an episode here or there or anything like that was because um, it's all done under the, the tax breaks that they get from the film board. Everything's shot in Canada. So um, any country, any actor who had affiliation with British Commonwealth could work on that production with uh, no cost to them. Um, but when you're talking about a 38% 30, a tax break, that they're going to have to sacrifice 12% if they hire me. They're not going to hire me. It was like, no, no. Did you enjoy the show? How I they did. adapted it? I did, yeah. I, I did quite a lot. I kind of live in Carolina and we're running into Steve and he's going to say, so what did you think about that one episode where blah, blah, blah? 
and I'm gonna have to go. Oh, like that part where you did the you shot the thing in the one guy and you punched another guy um, because I lost track after season two. I started going on the road so much that Wednesday night I was doing my laundry to get back on the airplane on Thursday to fly to a convention to do three days of a show and then fly home Monday, sleep in Tuesday, do my laundry on Wednesday, get on an airplane on Thursday. Right. So, yeah, of course, life gets in the way of right. all those things, for sure. Questions? Anyone? More questions. Feel free. Don't be shy. Anybody here, you know? Come on. So, one of my favorite characters of all time is Warlord. I just kind of want to know what inspired the design and the whole idea. You know, Warlord actually sprang from a comic strip that I was trying to sell with no luck. Um, it turned out that adventure comic strips were dead. Nobody would even give me an appointment to pitch the thing, right? Um, but it was uh, it was called Savage Empire, and it was about an archaeologist who falls through a time warp and winds up in Atlantis. Um, and that was uh, in my in my portfolio when I went out to New York to try and break in, and. I left a copy of it with Saul Harrison at New York Comic Con and uh, forgot all about it until uh, a couple of years later. Um, Atlas Comics reared its ugly head and said, we're going to pay $100 a page and give you guys creator ownership. You know, we want to see what you got. And I took my portfolio, off I go met with uh, Jeff Roven, who is the editor at Atlas, and uh, I gave him the pitch. He said, we like it. We, we want to do it. And I said, well, look, I've got commitments at DC. Let me get two issues in the bag before you announce it, right? Said, okay, sure, fine. Well, I walked from Atlas office across town 20 minutes to DC. And Carmine Infantino was waiting for me in the lobby. Seems that Jeff Roman had picked up the phone as I walked out the door and called Carmine to brag that he had me tied up. And uh, Carmine said, why didn't you bring it to us? And I said, well, you haven't had any luck with sword and sorcery type stuff, right? That's for starters. I didn't think you'd be that interested. Number two, $100 a page. Number three, creator ownership. And he said, I can't give you creator ownership. DC doesn't do that. And I can't give you $100 a page, but I can give you top rate, which was $62.50. It was uh, $20 a page more than I was getting for pencils and inks at the time. And uh, he said, and you'll get something that you won't get from Atlas. I'll give you a year guarantee. Uh, he said, he said, I, I know it doesn't look like it right now, but the odds are Atlas won't be around in six months. But, well, he was prophetic there. And not only that, but none of the guys who started working for Atlas at that creator ownership promise and $100 a page, none of them wound up owning their material. Atlas wound up with all of it. 
and hundred dollars a page less is for the first two issues. Mm. Then they fired all of those guys and hired foreign artists who will do it for twelve dollars and fifty cents a page. Like wow. Yep. So as I'm walking into Carmine's office to give him a pitch, his phone is ringing and in that three minute gap, my brain kicked in and said, you dummy, if he buys this, you lose it. So out went the, the idea of the archeologist in uh, Atlantis and in came the first thing that popped into my head. I've been in the Air Force. Uh, I was an illustrator with an intelligence combat operations group here in the States and uh, um, uh, headquarters in, in Saigon. And I knew a lot about the spy planes and stuff like that. And so I made him an SR-71 spy pilot. Um, I had just finished reading the book, The Hollow Earth, like the week before. And uh, as a kid, my, one of my favorite movies was Journey to the Center of the Earth. And I read the book like eight times when I was in school. So all of that came in. Um, Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, uh, had Pellucidar, right? It turns out that before the turn of the 20th century, there were something like 85 books written on the subject of the hollow earth because it was a very popular theory back then. So I had all this at my disposal. I changed all the names, changed all the scenario, uh, except the name of the villain. I could not then, and I still can't think of a better villain name than Demos. Mm. It just, you know, you see the name, you're like, okay. He's this the bad is, guy. Yeah, yeah. No one is ever going to name their child Demos. <laughs> I mean, I don't, he's, he's, a, he's a bad guy. Um, I mean, I know a bunch of Damians, right? Right. <laughs> not, not one single one. So um, I, I beat this my way through the, the pitch, and he said, take it to Joe Orlando. If Joe uh, likes it, I'll give you your guarantee. So I pitched Joe. Joe hit me with one question I hadn't thought about. Was, What's this guy's name? I went, Morgan. Morgan what? The Raider. You know, like Henry Morgan, the pirate. He goes, well, what's his first name? He said, it's got to be Henry. No, I can't do that. There's two actors already using that name. Henry Morgan and Harry Morgan, right? So my my brother had just had a baby boy and named him Travis. And I said, Travis. He says, Travis. I said, you don't like the Alamo? He went, oh, yeah, that's pretty good, right? (laughs) (laughs) Not like the baby boy back in Wisconsin. and uh, so, I mean, every, everything was pulled out of wherever I could pull it. Um, the world, Scartaris, at the center of the earth, is named for the mountain peak in Journey to the Center of the Earth, that the shadow points the way on uh, the first day of May, right? The, the, the peak casts a shadow that points the way to the, the proper passage to follow. Um, and the capital city, Shambhala, so there actually is a, a fabled golden city, supposedly underground somewhere in the Himalayas, but I got it from Three Dog Night. Mm. How does your light shine on the road to Shambhala? Right? Just like, 
everywhere, everything I could I could pull from, and I rolled it all up into a ball. And, um, the idea, of, uh, I, I like what I came up with because in a world where there's never been an ice age, there's no reason for the dinosaurs to have died out. Right. 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 So I've got dinosaurs, I've got jungles, I've got lost cities, science fiction, stuff left over from the Atlantean culture, magic works, they do anything. Then they pressed me to draw a map and I said, I'm never going to draw a map. They said, well, why not? I said, because if you, if you draw a map, you establish boundaries. And why would you want to put a boundary on imagination? Really? Right. Very cool. Um, any last questions before I ask mine? Okay. Almost 50 years in the business uh -oh. doing this as a creator, a writer, an artist. Uh, what has it taught you the most about yourself or about life? What have you learned from it all? <laughs> uh, trying to think what Steve Martin said in The Jerk. If you get it, get a shot and get rid of it. Um, no, it's it it's it's been a, a, a fabulous ride. Um, being in this job, I have learned so much about so much. Every time I've done a new project, I've studied and read uh, uh, to give myself the, the information, the background that I needed in order to carry things through. And it's been a, a great liberal arts education as I go. Uh, what I learned about myself is that I am the world's worst procrastinator. Um, I also learned that I work great under pressure uh, <laughs> of necessity. Um, I keep hearing that. There's no better inspiration than the deadline or the bills to pay. Yep, bills to pay. Yep, that is it. Hunger works. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I've... I've, I've been known to procrastinate until like the umpteenth hour and agonize over sometimes when I, when I start a book, drawing the first page takes two days to just pencil the first page. And then it gets faster and faster after that. Um, Dick Giordano set me wise to that. He said, if it takes you two days to pencil the splash page, what I would do is wait and do that last. Mm. I went, what? He said, yeah, it's only ever a couple of figures. If you do the splash page last, you'll be at your peak working your fastest and you finish it in an hour and a half. I went, that's a brilliant idea. Thank you very much. The other thing that I learned, uh, Julie Schwartz taught me this um, when I was bemoaning the fact that I had had to shuttle my driveway three times in one day. And he said, how long does that take you? I said, an hour and a half or two hours each time. And he said, and how much could you have earned in that amount of time? I said, well, the wasted time, I could have penciled two pages. He said, how much do you make per page? I went, why? He said, how much do you think a soul blow would cost you? Hmm. I went, 20 bucks. And I've never shoveled snow again. <laughs> there you go. Always something to learn. Well, I've been reading Green Arrow, your run. There's plenty of things that I learned that I didn't think I would learn from a comic book. And I thank you for that. 
and thank you for being in Toronto, uh, always visiting us whenever you're invited. It's a real privilege to have you here. And thank, thank you, you very much. Panel. And for what it's worth, it's not my job to answer the questions, it's my job to ask the questions. It's your job to figure out the answers. There you go. And something we can learn. <laughs> thank you, everybody. Enjoy the rest of the show. Get home safe wherever you're coming from.